Good morning. I'm Cole Foster, and today I will be reading the passage for us, which comes from Matthew 14, 1 through 12. This can be found on page 820 of your pew Bible. Matthew 14, 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. I'm Jimmy Dodd, and uh, it's an honor to be able to open up the word with you this morning. Let's, let's, let's just uh, pause here and just pray before we jump in. Father, we realize that we come from a lot of different situations this day. Some people come from uh, a place this week of joy. Some people come uh, very hurried and rushed. Some people come from a place of heartache. Father, we're grateful that no matter where we have come from, that you are there. You are with us. And you're going to meet us today at, Lord, whatever point that we're at. Father, we also realize there are those here that know that they need you, and there are those here that don't think that they need you. But Father, we pray that every ear and every heart would be open this morning to hear clearly from your word how there is a desperate need for Jesus and that while uh, at times some might play games with Jesus, uh, there's nothing more serious than bowing our knee and surrendering our life wholly and fully to you. So we ask that you would fill this time now by your Holy Spirit. Use it for good, for our good, and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the words of Mark Twain, truth is stranger than fiction. It's true, isn't it? I'm sure that we could all share stories about times and things that we've seen, and you just think, you can't make that up. I'm in Haiti, standing at the baggage claim, and I see my bag come out, and it's across the way, so I just have to wait for it. I see some guy run up, grab my bag, and run. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm in trouble here. Uh, everything I need is in that bag. And I find this other guy that works there, at, and, and I know him. I call him Mr. Big, and I say, Mr. Big, somebody just stole my bag. Uh, if you bring me back my bag, I'll give you 50 bucks, which is a lot in Haiti. But I'm thinking, I need my bag. And so I just stand there uh, and wait for about an hour and a half. And after about an hour and a half, here comes Mr. Big with my bag. He's got blood on his lip. I'm like, Mr. Big, what happened? He said, you do not want to know. Just give me my $50. <laughs> this week, there was a flight delayed because there was a woman on the flight that had her emotional support 
Turkey. And they weren't sure if that was actually legit, so they had to delay the flight while they asked questions and just investigated if that was going to be allowed. I mean, these things are true. Truth is stranger than fiction. We're going to go into a passage today that you can't make this up. I mean, it's just so convoluted and so disjointed, you just can't make this passage up. This is one of those stories of a family where you would say, you know what, truth is stranger than fiction. It's an unusual story because it's one of the only stories in the gospel where the central figure is not Jesus. It's about Herod and John the Baptist. So that's a bit unusual. It's a story about tremendous courage of John the Baptist, an amazing man. It's about extreme spineless, cowardly behavior of a fearful so-called king. And it's about you and me and sin And it's about the truth when it really confronts our conscience, our souls, and brings about deep change. So there's a context here that we have to be clear on because Jesus has sent out the 12. And the 12 have done a phenomenal job sharing the message of the gospel all around that world. I mean, not the world, but, you know, but but I mean like all around that area. It's very, very, it just goes very, very well. And the word reaches the, the ears of Herod about this person, Jesus, and what's happening. And so he understands, okay, something's going on, and he concludes John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's the only explanation. This is John. He has come back to haunt me. This is truly, for John the Baptist, he thinks, the walking dead. And so we're going to kind of go through this story, and I want to hit three main points. I want to talk about the courageous actions of John, the crippling fear of Herod, and the compassionate grace of Jesus Christ. So the courageous actions of John, the crippling fear of Herod, and the compassionate grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to frame this story. And this is one of those messages. We have to take some time at the very start just to frame the context because, again, truth is stranger than fiction. And you just have to understand what's going on and why this is such a big deal. The first four words create just a bit of confusion because it says, at that time, Herod. And you think, okay, wait a second, uh, Chris preached months and months ago on Matthew chapter 2, and there was a verse in there that said Herod died. So if Herod has died, what could it mean that Herod is here right now, and he's the one that's going to behead John the Baptist? What's, what's going on here? You have to understand the Herod family. And as we walk through the Herod family, this is where you're going to feel better about yourself. Because you're going to think, I thought I had problems. I thought I had issues, and there's those times in life where you see things and you do things and you think, maybe my life is not so bad, right? It's like a trip to the Kansas State Fair. I always feel better about myself. (laughs) After a trip to the Kansas State Fair, I think, maybe my life is not as bad as I thought it was before I came to the Kansas State Fair. It's one of those. This This is like the Kardashians on extreme steroids. You just can't make this up. So Rome is growing. Rome is expanding. It's on the move. And in about 68, they say, this is actually before Christ is born. They say, you know what? We, we need to have somebody that can essentially rule the Jew. The, you know, I mean, like all, just like this whole area. So we need to have a Jewish person. So they select this man and give him this great title, King Herod the Great. Now, He's the only one that will have that name, the great and only one that will actually be called a king. And so he's, he's got this authority. Nobody could have a smaller heart and mind than him. 
He's the one that said, you know what, if I think that you're any threat to me, I'm going to take your life. If I think there's any way that you could possibly take my power, I will take your life. So he's the one who says, okay, I hear that somebody's been born who will, who will one day be a true king, and so he's the one who slaughters all of those little boys for fear of Jesus. That's the same Herod. Herod has 10 wives, and he has a lot of different children. He has seven sons, very, very important. Now, some of his sons, he thinks, I don't think that you're a threat to me, but there's other sons, he thinks, I think you're a tremendous threat to me. He's got these twin boys, Alexander, and then this young boy named Aristobulus, and he's always kind of threatened by them, and as they begin to grow up and they get married and they start to have kids, he's more and more threatened by them. Aristobulus, very important, he grows up, he gets married, he has five kids. Two of his kids are extremely important in Scripture. He has a daughter, Herodias, and he has a son, Agrippa. But he's a threat to Herod. So in 7 BC, Herod has built this huge palace, and he said, you know what? The one thing I want in the palace is I want to have a really nice swimming pool. So he has this gorgeous swimming pool, and he takes his two twin boys out to the pool, and he drowns them. Three years later, he's going to drown one more son. So he's going to slaughter three of his sons. So right down, right down, and I mean, I mean, I mean, like around the world, his his name is spreading, and there's this thing that begins to be saying it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son, because he slaughters so many people. He slaughters rabbis. He slaughters students. Here's how small of a mind he has. This is one of the most heartbreaking things. But it's a true story. So we think, wait a second, how how do we know so much about this? Because I don't think that that was all in this text in the Bible. Because there's a historian at the time, and his name is Josephus. He writes extensively about the Herods. We have so many stories about the Herods. We have huge details because of this very faithful scholar who writes this history. And he writes about them. But Herod is just about to die, and he knows he's just about to die, so he says, okay, you know what? Go to Jericho and round up the most loved and respected people in the entire community and put them in the arena, and the second that I die, slaughter everybody there, because I don't want anybody rejoicing that I'm dead, because I know they hate me. I know the Jews hate me, and so I want there to be grief when I die, so to guarantee that there's grief slaughter the most beloved, loyal people in this area. It's just, it's just craziness. Right before he dies, he says, okay, I've got four boys right now who are actually alive, and I want to give three of them my land and my territory. Now, once again, it's all underneath Rome. And he says, okay, I want to give some land to Archelaus and some to Antipas and some to actually Philip. And so he gives each one of them also that name Herod. So at this point now, we've got four Herods. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, and Herod Philip. Now there's one more son. To make things incredibly confusing, his name is also Philip. But we can call him, that's just the extra Philip. That's the Philip that really doesn't get anything. He's a Philip of just like no consequence. Herod dies, and so his three boys take over the land. And they're now the governors. They're, they're like the Herods. And so we don't read much actually about like Archelaus, but we do know that there's a story about him because Jesus is, is growing up in Egypt and his 
parents here in this dream, hey, you know what, you can go home now because Herod the Great has died. And they go back home, but when they get back home, they hear, we're told, hey, there's this other Herod, which is Archelaus, and he's still around. That's why they go to, to, to actually Nazareth. That's why, that's, that's, that's why they're, they're, they're there. So Herodias, whose dad has been actually drowned and murdered, thinks, I've got three uncles, and they're in charge of all of Israel. I might as well get to know them. So Herodias travels around, and she, starts, you know, she thinks, I want to start to meet my uncle Philip. And so she meets Philip, and uh, they, they fall in love. And they get married. And uh, it's a little bit strange, because now she's Philip's wife. She's also his niece, okay? Are you with me so far? Okay. Then Antipas thinks, you know what? I want to go up to Rome and ask for a bit more land. I need a little bit more land. I feel like I got cut short. So he's on his way to Rome to ask for a lot more land. And he thinks, hey, on the way, I might as well stop by and say hi to my brother Philip. So he stops by and says hello to Philip. And hey, Philip, how are you? Hey, you know what I mean? I don't even know if you know this. I married our niece. Here she is. This is my wife, Herodias. So Antipas meets Herodias. He stays around there for a while, and they begin to have an affair. After a while, it's clear, hey, you know what? I think we should just get married. If we get married, you're going to have to leave your husband, Philip, and I want to have to leave my wife, because Antipas is also married. He didn't marry for love. He married the daughter of the Nabitan king, who has a huge place right next door to him, because it's always wise to marry the daughter of your enemy that's right next door. And so they think, hey, we, we should probably get married, but you're going to have to get rid of your spouse. You're going to have to get rid of your spouse. So he leaves uh, his wife and says, go home to your daddy. He's rich and you'll be fine. That will eventually start a war. That will eventually lead to a war, but that's a whole, that, that's, a, that, that's this other story. So, so, so then Antipas marries his brother's wife, which is craziness. And so it's like, hey, I, I want you to, to meet my, you know, my, my wife and my sister-in-law and my niece. And somebody says, well, I just see one person there. He goes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's just that nuts. So she says, you know what? I'm excited to live with you, Antipas. I'm excited to be your wife, but here's the deal. I have some baggage. I have a daughter, Salome, who's going to come with me. And I have a brother, that I kind of take care of because he's got a lot of debt. His name is actually Agrippa. And so she brings these two along with her to be, be like with Antipas. So actually Agrippa's got this massive debt. And Antipas just won't leave him alone. He teases him about this debt. Just, you're such a loser. I can't believe that you're as old as you are and you have all this debt. You're a mess. And after a while, I mean, like Agrippa can't take it anymore. So he says, I, I can't stay here anymore. So he goes to Rome. And he's going to have a son who's also Agrippa II, and he's the Herod that speaks with Paul in Acts chapter 26. It's all a part of the same family. It's craziness. So that is the context of the story. This, this is a messy family. By the way, Salome will one day meet the other guy whose name is Phil, Philip, and they will get married. And so she will have a husband who is her uncle and then becomes her husband. It's just, it's just craziness. And it, it's, we, we could go on and on. There is just, there is incest all throughout this family. 
That's the context in which John the Baptist will speak into. So let's now walk through the just amazing, courageous actions of John. See, people weren't saying that much about Herod because they feared him. But they knew that what he did was wrong. He took his brother's wife. He took his brother's wife, which was absolutely wrong and sinful. And people were not speaking up. But John, John has the courage to speak up. He says, you know what? This is adultery. That's what it is. He does not mince his words. This is adultery. We know a bit more about what John said because, because in the Gospel of Mark, Mark spends a bit more time actually on the story, and he spells out just, just like a lot more details. But we know that he called sin, sin. John the Baptist feared God more than he feared the consequences of men. He did not fear what would happen to him if he stood up for the truth. He knew that it did not excuse him from this responsibility to speak truth as a prophet just because he knew that there would be consequences as a result. That wouldn't paralyze him. It would not muzzle him. He was a prophet without a price. Don't we need that now? I mean, right now in our culture, don't we long to hear prophets without price? People who will speak the truth regardless of the potential consequences. We long for politicians that will speak up and speak their conscience and their soul not to win people over, not out of fear for what somebody else might think about them and their party. We long for prophets that can't be bought. We long for politicians that can't be bought. He believed that God's word was being mocked. And if you believe God's word is being mocked and you love somebody and you care about them, you're going to speak the truth to them. Maybe there was a time in which he started to speak and maybe like Antipas was like, come on, it's just Herodias. Come on, it's the 30s. Loosen up a little bit, man, come on. Just relax a little bit. But it was a huge scandal. Everybody knew it, but John the Baptist was the one that would absolutely speak up. They ignored him for a while, but after a while, his voice became so loud, they said, okay, arrest him. John is imprisoned. He's put into this huge fortress, which is in the desert, which a uh, giant fortress overlooks the, oh, it's, it, it overlooks the Dead Sea. And he's in this prison. And we're told that even though Antipas is angry with him, he is intrigued at the same time. He comes to John and he wants to hear from him. He wants to speak with him. We're told that he is perplexed by him, that he's puzzled by the things that he say. But listen, there are a lot of lies that are being told every day by Satan, right? That's his main tool. He whispers lies in our ears and oftentimes we believe those lies. And one lie is, hey, if you do good things for God, God essentially owes you and there's going to be great things in your life. If you don't do things for God and if you don't walk with God, there's going to be terrible things that happen in your life. You had a car accident. What? I, maybe I'm not walking with God. You have cancer. Maybe God is angry with me. He, he doesn't love me. I found a parking place right next to the front door. Thank God I had my quiet time this morning. That's not how God works, right? But so often we have the most weak, feeble, thin theology because that's the way that most people think about God. Most people think about God by saying, hey, if I just do these things, then God essentially owes me, or if I do these things, God is going to pay me back with harm. That is the worst theology that we can possibly have. I have a name for it, and I'll tell you what the name is through a story. So 
If I'm in a group of people and they say, hey, let's all kind of meet and kind of share our stories um, and let's get to know each other by sharing, uh, you know, you can say your favorite song or favorite whatever it might be, but I'm always nervous if they say, what's your favorite movie? It's interesting, this happened to me on Thursday of this week because everybody goes around and, hey, you know what, here's my favorite movie. And because if you're a guy, you're just expected to say, hey, it's, you know, The Matrix or, you know, the Patriot or Braveheart or Gladiator or, you know, Top Gun or whatever it might be. And I always get really nervous in these moments because I'm thinking, man, I really don't want to be honest. I want to be able to say something. But it's, anyway, it gets to me. It's a hard swallow. And I say, my favorite movie is The Sound of Music. It's The Sound of Music. I realize I just lost most of the guys in the room. The women love me more now, but I lost most of the guys. Guys, hang in there. Hang in there. It's, it's, it's a great movie, right? I mean, it's an incredible story. I've watched it a hundred times probably, right? And so it's the captain and Marie and the tension and the love and the building romance, and yet there's no words yet, and it's kind of the will they, won't they. And then there's this moment, and they're outdoors, and they're in the gazebo, and they realize that they truly love each other. And my wife knows that there's a scene coming that I will just gripe and scream because I think it is probably the worst song ever written and ever sung in the history of music. I mean, I know that that's an overstatement, but I think that's it. And there's this scene in the movie, you need to just turn off everything and just walk away because you don't want to watch this. Because when Maria kisses the captain, she sings a song called Something Good. Now, I'm going to spare you and not sing it, but let me share with you what the words are. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's sound of music theology right there. Something good is happening to me. Why? I must have done something good. That's so often the way that we think about God. Listen, John the Baptist was an incredible leader. He's Jesus' first cousin. He's a man of conviction. He's a man of heart. He's a man of conscience. He's going to be true to what God speaks to his soul. And he met with demise. He, was, he lost his head over this. So you think, that just doesn't seem fair. Don't hold such weak theology that you think, okay, I need to do all of these good things so that God will treat me well where you live in fear because you know you've done some things which you're not proud of and you think God will be out to get you. That's terrible theology. We need to rest wholly upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is absolutely our only hope. So let's go on to now the crippling fear of Herod. So Herod, you know that this is a flashback in one sense, you know, he, because he knows that, that just, just all this stuff about Jesus and he thinks, okay, this is John the Baptist. Essentially, he says, there's a zombie. He believes that Jesus is a zombie. He thinks it's the walking dead. Jesus is a zombie. That's not Jesus. That's actually John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. Why would he think such an absolutely crazy thing? Because after he, he's arrested, we're told this story of how John dies. We're told that John is one that loves to talk with Antipas, and he loves to speak with John, and he's perplexed, and he's always puzzled, and it's just, it's just so interesting. If you read through, actually, Mark, it says he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
It's interesting. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're a bit perplexed by the gospel. Maybe you're here at this church and you're just kind of trying to just explore Christianity. We're so glad you're here because this is a safe place to come and just, just explore Christianity, just to ask some very honest questions. So he loves to hear John. He's, he, he gladly hears him, but he's puzzled by it at the same time. He's extremely perplexed. John is touching his heart in, the no way, in a way that no one ever has. But there's one thing that Antipas will not do. He doesn't repent. He hears it all, and he, he begins to you know, glean all of this information, but he doesn't come to that point of repentance. And in the end, it's very sad, but his regard for John was not greater than his love to be loved by other people. He falls in one sense to peer pressure. It's a heartbreaking story. One question we have to ask ourselves as we read this story is, what holds us back from repenting? Is there, it's like, well, there's, there's a lot at stake in my job. There's a lot at stake in my relationships. There's a lot at stake in my career. And uh, people kind of know me as this type of a person. And if I repent and if I openly proclaim Jesus, I don't know how people are going to react to me. That might be a little bit awkward. What keeps you from repenting? What keeps you from just saying, the only thing, I, the, the desperate thing I need is the, the Lord Jesus Christ? Herod does not repent. He hears it all. Now, Herodias, his wife, isn't perplexed by John. She hates John. Herodias wants him dead. She's a terrible, mean, evil, calculating person. She wants him absolutely gone as soon as possible. She's cold. She has a grudge. And so with calculating patience, she begins to think through, how can I get John? How can we take care of this? How can we do this absolutely terrible thing? She's willing to sacrifice even her own family to advance her own agenda. And so she thinks this through. She knows the right time to strike like a snake against John. Her husband, Herod, is going to have a birthday party. It's his 50th birthday party. It's a big deal. When you turn 50, man, it's going to be days and days of celebration. And you're going to invite all of your peers and your military commanders and all of these people to have this feast with you. And it's going to be a multi-day feast. It's going to have drinking. It's going to have debauchery. It's going to have sex. It's going to have prostitutes. We're told great details, actually, in Josephus of exactly what goes on at these parties. So there's going to be this huge party. Herodias knows that after a couple days of this party, that it will be the right time. So after a couple days when the men are well drunk and they're well into this party and they've told all of these stories, I'm sure, and it's just debauchery, Herodias sends in her daughter, the stepdaughter of Herod, to dance before these men. Nobody back then would send in even an enemy. I mean, it is just, this isn't done. This would only be done by prostitutes. This would only be done in the most, I mean, this just isn't done. Even Gentile mothers would not have their daughters dance. You just didn't do this. And so I want you, we want to keep it clean because it's church, right, Chris? But at the same time, this isn't a classical dance. It's closer to a pole dance and a strip joint. Listen to how awful this is. These 
It's his 50th birthday. And a teenage girl comes in to dance lustfully before him. These are older men, and a teenager comes into the room and does this seductive dance before these men. And Herod is so enraptured in lust and longing that he makes an oath. Maybe he thinks it'll be impressive because maybe he thinks, hey, this will make everybody think about the story about Esther and let them know that even though I'm hated by the people, I know my Bible. So he says, oh my gosh, that dance was amazing. Ask me for anything you want up to half my kingdom, which is just what Esther heard in her story. And I'm sure the men around him are screaming, oh, Herod, yes. Here's what's crazy. He's not a king. He's a governor. He has no kingdom to give. He's pretending that he's a king. And you're going to say, wait a second, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark calls him a king. Why? We're going to come to that in point three. But he's not a king. He's a pretend king. He's a governor. So when he says up to half my kingdom, he has no kingdom to give. He has nothing to give along those lines. He's a governor. And so I'm sure he's thinking, oh, she, I don't even know what she'll ask for. I mean, maybe she'll ask for a pearl dress. Maybe if she goes just crazy, she's going to ask for a stallion for herself to have to ride. You know, he's thinking, you know, she's not going to think big. Salome goes to her mother, Herodias, and says, what should I ask for? Herodias says, the head of John the Baptist. She goes back to Herod, who has made this oath. He makes a solemn oath in front of all of his guests. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And then, sickening, like mother, like daughter, right now on a silver platter. She adds that herself. Can you imagine Herod at that moment just... You know, that there's been the dancing and there's been the oath made and all this fringe just hooping and hollering and oh my gosh, what is she going to ask for? And laughing and screaming. And then he hears those words, I want, the, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a platter. I just have this picture of Harry just, oh, oh, oh. He's caught. He knows he's caught. There's nothing he can do. Because he feared the people. He fears the Jews outside. He fears his peers in the room. He fears losing face. And so John the Baptist will lose his head because Herod did not want to lose face. He should have said, oh my goodness. No, 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 no. John the Baptist is, you know what, he's an innocent man. He's an innocent man. I absolutely can't do that. But he is so gripped with fear. Listen, all God's demand sacrifices. All God's demand sacrifices. The alcohol and the sensuality, the charged atmosphere, the desire not to look back, you know, bad. I mean, it it all worked together. Herodias had the absolutely perfect plan. Listen. When sinful desires meet, meet real, true opportunity, there's, there's trouble. We need to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We need to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus that we don't give sin that, that type of opportunity. So he's got lustful thoughts. He's thought about these things. But now it's real life. It's right in front of him. 
Lust has met opportunity, and it all goes absolutely wrong. He orders this terrible execution, and then the only noble act we read about in this story is John's disciples risk their lives. They have to risk their life to come to get John. They bury him, and then they go and tell Jesus. How noble are John's disciples to come and pick up a corpse with no head? It's a heartbreaking story. So now we get back to the present. It says this in verse 1. At that time, Herod had heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why all of these powers are at work in him. You see, it's such a weird relationship he has with John because he was, a, he was afraid of John when John was alive. Now John is dead. He's still scared of John. I mean, Herod's life is gripped by fear. He's this guy that's in charge. He's a governor. He's got authority. And yet his whole life is absolutely gripped by fear. He's like, I, I, I have to do these things. I, I, I can't lose it all. I can't lose it all. I can't lose it all. And he needs to hear the words from Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Because Herod is losing his own soul in this process. So it just begs the question, what things do you identify with that you hold on so tightly that one day those gods that you might hold on to are going to come back and make you pay? They're going to demand a price. Is it your wealth? Is it your looks? Is it your position? Do you build your identity around certain things in this world? Wow. Chris had a great statement actually this morning. He said, some will do anything to explain away Jesus. And they'll believe in a ghost story over a gospel story. They'll prefer a ghost story uh, over this gospel story. Herod feared the people. He feared John, both dead and alive. His life was gripped by fear. And later in the story, we're going to read that he's again gripped by fear again when he meets Jesus face to face. So let's talk about point three, the compassionate grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, John has no weapon, right? I mean, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, he had no weapon in life other than the truth. But man, it can be a terrible thing when we are confronted by the truth and yet we're trying to do things that are wrong and evil. The truth will set you free and the truth could have set Herod free. You see, the message here is not hey, you know what, you, you should be like John. Because Jesus says, actually, Matthew 11, he says, hey, there's these people from all over, and then there's John the Baptist. Hey, he's like the greatest person ever. Jesus says, man, John the Baptist is absolutely incredible. But listen, you know where John the Baptist is right now? He's in the ground waiting for the final resurrection. I mean, he's not God. He can't save you. You can't think, okay, This is a great passage, a great story. I think the takeaway is, I want to be a lot more like John the Baptist. I want to live like John the Baptist. That's not the takeaway. Because John the Baptist cannot save you. The takeaway is ultimately to look to Jesus because he is the only one. Jesus is the only one that died for your sin. John died because of the sins of the people. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the people. There's a massive difference in those two. So interesting that there are three deaths that shape the story about the New Testament. John the Baptist, Jesus, and then Stephen. Those three deaths really shape. 
two of them die, you actually under the same person, Herod, Herod Antipas. Now, there will be other roles with Jesus played by others, like, you know, obviously Pilate and others, but Herod plays a key role in this. Because Jesus is arrested, and he, he goes over to Pilate. Pilate speaks with Jesus, and then he hears, hey, you know what? Herod's in town right now. He doesn't live here in Jerusalem, but he's in town for the Passover, and he thinks, I can really get out of this easily. So he sends Jesus to Herod. So finally, this Jesus that he's heard about that he thought was you know, actually this, I mean, he, I, mean, I mean, he thought for years it's a zombie. He's going to have a chance to meet this Jesus face to face. So he meets him. It says in Luke 23 and verse 8, he saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long, 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 long desired to see him and meet him because he had heard all about him. And he hoped to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length. But Jesus gave no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by and they were accusing him. And with Herod, his soldiers, they treated him with contempt and they mocked him. Herod finally meets Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard about these miracles. Finally, he meets Jesus. And what does he say? Can you show me a magic trick? It's just heartbreaking. There's no repentance. There's no deep question. There's no, hey, I've lived my whole life in fear. He's not honest about anything. He finally meets Jesus and he says, can you show me a magic trick? Jesus doesn't say a word to him. Herod gets frustrated, sends him back to Pilate, and it says that day, for the first time, Herod became friends with Pilate. They didn't really like each other before, but the fact that they had this mutual scorn and hatred of Jesus, it bonds them, which is obviously ironic. People still try to compete with Jesus. So why does Mark tell us in his gospel, why does Mark call Herod King Herod? It's absolute sarcasm. Because Mark is trying to create this contrast. Hey, here's a person who calls himself a king. He's not a king. And ultimately, there's going to be a Jesus. He is a king. There's Herod's kingdom, and then there's this real kingdom. And so Mark is drawing this contrast between the so-called king and the absolute true king. Because Herod was not a king. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are those things that I try to, to be the king of? What are those things that I try to hold on to in life? What are those things that keep me from really seeing Jesus? Jesus did not come to make you pay. He came to let you know that he will pay. Jesus, the message he has for you this day is, I am the one that's going to pay the penalty for your sins. Many of you here today identify with Herod. You think, you know what, I've done some terrible things. I've got some secrets in my life. I've done things I'm not proud of. I feel like I'm a lot more like Herod than I am like actually John the Baptist or Jesus. You need to hear this this day. You are worth much more than the worst thing that you have ever done. In the eyes of God, your value is a great deal more than the worst thing that you have ever done. And Jesus does not define you by the worst thing that you have ever done. 
He wants to define you by his mercy and his grace, his kindness. You see, there's a doorway to grace. There's a doorway that you can step through to be freed, to be freed from the fear of people, from the fear of death, from all of these. And the doorway is repentance. It's what Herod never did. His father never did it. His brothers, as far as we know, they never did it. His nephews, as far as we know, will never do it. The doorway is repentance. And it's that doorway that brings us to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of the fact that there is a doorway and it's repentance. And you see, when we repent, we acknowledge that our sin has been primarily against God. It's not just regret. It's not just sorrow, but it's repentance. It's not penance. I think that there's people that get those confused. When you have penance, you're saying, I want to try harder. I'm just going to try harder. Okay, as a result of this message, I want to be more like John the Baptist. I want to have more courage. I'm just going to stand up and speak truth, and no matter what the cost. That's not this passage. This passage is about repentance. It's begging for repentance from Herod. And ultimately, it points to Jesus and the fact that Herod comes face to face with Jesus, and there's no repentance. It's just show me a magic trick. It can't be penance. Hey, I want to try harder. It has to be repentance. My sin has ultimately been against God alone, and I desperately need grace. So as you come to partake of this meal, that's what you're just reminding yourself of. I need to daily repent. I need to make repentance a regular part of my life and come and bow my knee before Jesus. This meal is for those who have repented. This meal is for those who love Jesus. If you have not repented, if there are things that you're thinking, I want to find my worth in these sins, I'm not going to repent of these things, I encourage you, please stay in your seat because this meal is not for you. Now listen, we're so glad you're here though. And this is a great place to come and to hear that message. And we pray that there comes that point where you do repent, where there is genuine, genuine, true repentance. And you say, I need the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be those up front and there will be bread in the cup and you will hear these amazing words. This is the body of Christ, which has been broken for you. This is the blood of Christ, which has been shed for you. And this meal is a picture It's a reminder, it's a symbol, once again, of the doorway to repentance. And so we pray that you would embrace that repentance this day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our heart breaks at the story of John the Baptist, a man that had so much courage, that spoke up, that wasn't guided by what everybody thought. He knew that there would be consequences. And yet he wouldn't be played by anybody. Father, I pray that we in our hearts this day would repent, that we would think back upon our sin and realize that ultimately our sin has only been against God and that there would be repentance and that in that repentance there would be a coming back home to you. Father, do a deep work on our heart. We need you. Life is hard. Life can be confusing. We need Jesus. So shine bright by your glory in our hearts in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.